Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Uh, we've been talking for the last few weeks about worship and uh, how it impacts our lives. And uh, I, I want to begin with uh, what David wrote about worship. David was kind of into worship. He was, he was uh, the guy in uh, the Bible who, who kind of lived into worship and organized all kinds of worshipful uh, events and sang and danced himself. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And that's what we're doing right now. That's what we've been doing already this morning. What we're doing right now is really right to the heart of what worship is all about, that we come and we adore and give our praises to God, to do what David calls magnifying him. Well, now, to magnify an object, a physical object, you take a lens like a microscope or a telescope or even a magnifying glass, and you draw something close. You, you're able to kind of look at it much more closely than you would otherwise. You, you study it. You look at things that otherwise you might not be able to see or overlook. Usually in our, uh, in our lives, we tend to magnify our problems for some strange reason. They become bigger and bigger and almost overwhelm us. We have our own agendas, our own desires, our own schedules, and those things seem to be what we magnify. But in worship, we finally get it right. We come together and we magnify God. That is, we look closely at God. We listen closely to God. Obviously, we don't make him bigger because he's infinite. He's, he's big with capital letters. He's as big as he can possibly be. But we can make him bigger in our lives. We look at aspects of God that we otherwise might overlook until our minds and our hearts are filled with the sheer goodness, the sheer greatness, the, the glory of God. And then instead of just being spectators, we start to become worshipers. We learn to hold God before us in such a way that we become genuinely convinced that there is no end to his goodness, to his competence, and they're available to us every day so that every day we can live our lives as acts of worship. Jesus cut right to the chase. He just zeroes in right in on it when he says, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Because worship really is about giving. So what is it that we exchange? It's a very important question because every day of your life, every minute of your life, you're exchanging your life for something. We're all given just a certain amount of time, a certain amount of minutes to live. The average human being, they say, lives about 25,550 days. Don't start counting. It's not a really positive thing to do. Every day when you wake up, you exchange your life for something. Some people exchange their life for media. They just give it away to media. Some people exchange their life for, for trashy stuff, stuff that just has no value whatsoever. Some people exchange their life for absolutely nothing. You're going to exchange your life for something. Wise people plan what to exchange their life for, what to give in exchange for the time that they have in their lives. We call it a commitment. We call it commitments, choosing how we're going to invest our life. Simply put, like it or not, we're always choosing how we're going to spend or use our resources. 
The Bible says that nothing affects our life more than the commitments that we choose to make. In fact, our commitments have three simple but profound effects on our life. The first that comes with the power of commitment is that it shows our values. When we worship, we're determining our values. This is so important about worship. When we worship, we're declaring our priorities. They show what we really think is important, what we really value, what we truly love. There is no such thing as love, you see, without commitment. I may say something is important to me, but what I really commit to shows what is there at the top of the list. I may say, for instance, that my family is important to me, but if I commit all my time to work or hobbies or other things, and none of my time is committed to my family, it shows what's really important and also what's not. This is from a book by Robert Russell. It's kind of a goofy story. I know it's, I don't even know if it's true or not, but he writes about in Kentucky, uh, there's a huge basketball game every year between the University of Kentucky, always a strong team, and the University of Louisville, also a very strong team. They call it the dream game. And it always happens at a place called the Rupp Arena. So this guy's at Rupp Arena one night, and it's time, it's the scheduled time for the big game. They call it the dream game, and there's a reason. Everybody's there. He sees a woman sitting, and there's a chair next to her that's empty. Nobody's sitting in it. There's nobody around. And that is impossible. There's, just, there's never an empty seat at this dream game. It's unheard of. So curiosity gets him, and he says to her, how, how does it come to be that there is an empty seat in this stadium next to you? She said, well, here's the deal. For 28 years, my husband and I were season ticket holders. For 28 years, we've never missed a single game here. That's his seat. But my husband has passed away. Oh, he says, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Did you not have anybody else? Did you, have, did you have to come here alone? Couldn't you get somebody, a friend or a relative to come with you? And she said, are you kidding? They're all at his funeral. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but we know what that lady valued, right? Her life proclaimed it loud and clear, and you know what? So does ours. Our life proclaims what we value all the time. You proclaim what you value by your commitments, what you actually stand behind so much more than just your words. If I say my health is important to me, but I don't commit any of my time or resources to taking care of myself, well, then it means that my health is really not all that important, no matter what I say. If you don't make any commitments in life, you're basically saying, the only thing that's important to me, by default, therefore, is me. The uncommitted life, in essence, is all about selfishness. It's saying, I don't consider anyone or anything, or any cause worthy of my commitment, therefore, I'm committed only to me. You're saying what gets first place when you make your commitments. Commitments also shape our life. This is profound from Psalm 115. The psalmist is talking about those who treasure or worship idols. This is what he says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And then he be begins to describe the idols. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, noses but can't smell, hands but can't feel, feet but can't walk. And then he says this. 
Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The Bible says, you become like the God you worship. You worship money, you'll be shaped by greed. You worship power, you'll be shaped by arrogance. You worship comfort, you'll be shaped by apathy. You worship approval, you'll become a chameleon, always changing to get that approval. You worship achievement, you'll become a user of people. Be real careful, Jesus says, what you treasure, because it'll shape your heart. Therefore, the most important commandment in the history of the human race is the one that we've been focusing on this year, and that is to treasure God above all else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, the Bible says. The beginning of the Ten Commandments, which we looked at, I am the Lord your God. Remember, he says that before any kind of commitment on our part. He makes a commitment to, the, to us. I am the Lord your God. Now, your commitment is you shall have no other gods before me. We become whatever we're committed to. So choose your commitments so, so carefully. Not only that, the Bible says our commitments settle our destiny. The destiny of nations is determined by the commitments that its citizens are willing to make. The very fact that we experience freedom here in Canada, freedom to talk, freedom to pray, freedom to come here today and worship is because somebody has spilled their blood for that, for our freedom. It's been bought with a price. The commitments that you make, that I make, they not only determine the here and now, they also determine our destiny for eternity. Life here on earth, whatever, 60, 80, even 100 years is so brief, it hardly even measures on the scale compared to the years we're going to spend together in eternity. If you develop a relationship with Christ, you're going to spend eternity with him. And your rewards and responsibilities, we're told, are going to be based on how you invested, what commitments you made here on earth. Always it involves commitments. If you don't get anything else, get this. In life, every choice you make has a consequence. It may seem the most insignificant choice that you make, but in the grand scheme of things, they all add up and all involve your time and your influence on eternity. The choices and the commitments I make will show my values, they will shape my life, and they will determine my destiny. It's very important that we learn to make wise commitments because there's a price of commitment. Of course, the most important commitment that anyone can ever make is our commitment to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Every commitment, regardless of which one you make, has a price tag to it. Jesus used the word exchange. What can you give in exchange for this? There's most definitely a cost, Jesus says. He's very upfront about it. He doesn't beat around the bush at all. He's not vague. He just lays it out for us in Luke. He says, if you want to be my followers, you must love me more than your own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even more than your own life. Otherwise, and here's the kicker, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is very clear about the cost of following him, the cost of commitment. He's saying, I expect to be first place in life. You have to love me more than anybody or anything else if you want to be my follower. That's pretty audacious. 
Jesus makes demands on your life that no dictator, no despot, would even think of demanding in terms of loyalty. The only difference is he has a right to make those demands. Why? Because he made us. He created us. He loves us. He has a plan for our life. He's proved all of this by dying on the cross for us. Nobody else has done that. Nobody else can claim those things. Jesus says, I gave my life for you, every single one of you. I expect then an exchange. I expect your commitment in return. And I think he has a right to it. Paul doesn't beat around the bush either, no surprise. He's just finished Romans 11 in praise, and this is what he's written in praise at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? In other words, why would God ever owe anybody anything? From, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen, he says. And then, therefore... Therefore, because of what I've just said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is the bottom line, folks. This is what this whole Back to Basic series has been leading to. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to worship. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The answer to the cost of commitment can be given in a single word, and it's the word sacrifice. Whatever is of first importance to us, we serve, we sacrifice for. You treasure having a certain kind of body, well, you'll sacrifice to get it. You treasure a certain level of achievement above all else, well, you'll sacrifice for that. You treasure having a certain amount of money or security, you will, you will sacrifice for that. Whatever we treasure, we serve. Whatever we treasure, we sacrifice for. We think about it. We work for it. We pay for it. We dream about it. That which you worship, that which you treasure above all else with your life is that which you're willing to sacrifice everything in order to cling to, to grasp, to attain. That for which you constantly make sacrifices in your daily life because sacrifice, sacrifice is the language of worship. Sacrifice is the ultimate language of love. Whatever you give your heart to, you will sacrifice everything for. That brings me to a real serious question. We didn't start with it today. It's in the middle. Here's the question for you. What is it you sacrifice for? You're sacrificing for something. You're exchanging your time for something. You're exchanging your property, your resources. You're exchanging it for something. What is it that you're exchanging it for? What is it that you're sacrificing for? I invite you to reflect on that. It can't be just a, oh, I got that one. You need to think about it. You need to spend time reflecting on that. What is it that you sacrifice for really? And I mean really. A businessman claims to be a Christian. The truth about him is he's consumed by his desire for achievement and success, and he's sacrificing everything. 
for it. He neglects his marriage, his children, and although he would tell you that he values them most of all, his life tells a completely different story. He makes promises and breaks them casually, tries to buy off his family by bringing them things. But the truth is, he has placed his family on the altar and is sacrificing them to his true God, which is success. A woman claims to be a Christian, but in fact, worships approval, being well thought of and pressing others. This person sacrifices her own opinion, her own integrity, just to try to manage other people's impressions of her. Perhaps you worship comfort. A lot of people do. That's not much to worship, is it? That's not much of a God, friends. Comfort is not much of a God at all. And if that's what you're devoted to, comfort and security, you don't think about yourself as really sacrificing for that. But you are. You're sacrificing your growth. You're sacrificing risk. You're sacrificing learning and faith and generosity and perhaps most of all, your, your very passion. You have placed on the altar the adventure that could have been your life and instead, you've placed your life on that altar and offered it to the God of ease and security and comfort. Maybe you have a bunch of altars, but the Bible says you should only have one, and it should be for God. Worship God and only God. Treasure Him above all else. Come to Him and say, God, such as I have, I give to you. Such as I am, I give to you. When we worship with our mouths, we offer God a sacrifice of praise. But worship is also to be a sacrifice of our very lives. This is the commitment that God seeks from us above all else. This is what it is to be a devoted disciple. This is what it is to come before God and empty ourselves and say, God, this is my life. Every moment in time, every inch of space, every activity in which I engage is to be a sacrifice which makes it worship acceptable to God. A couple of points about this verse. First of all, Paul uses the word present. I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice. He's using there a technical term. This was used in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there was an act of worship that people were to engage in. They were to present. They would bring physical things of value to them, often usually a, a lamb or the first lamb or something of extreme value to them, something that normally, given human intentions, you would keep that for yourself because it was, is the best. But no, instead, you're to bring it, you're to present it on the altar. And they'd bring things like that to sacrifice to God, to express to him that he was first in their lives, and to acknowledge their need for forgiveness, for being washed of sin and being made right before him. As an act of worship, they would bring their sacrificed offering and present it, put it in place on the altar. And the moment you did that, you couldn't take it back off. It, as soon as you let your hands off of it, it was gone. It wasn't yours anymore. You had given it to God. It now belonged to God, literally out of your hands. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross removed the death penalty once and for all for those who believe in him. He took our place so that we might live. And that's Paul's point here. He says to each of us, as they used to present these temporary substitutes in death, you now can present your bodies, yourselves, as sacrifices that are living. They're no longer dead, lifeless, of no real value anymore. You're living. But this is an odd phrase, isn't it? 
living sacrifice? In the old system, of course, the sacrifice was dead. And here's part of the deal. A dead sacrifice just lays there on the altar, right? But imagine what a living sacrifice might do, bring in free will and all those things. A living sacrifice knows what's coming. They know there's a price to be paid. A living sacrifice would be tempted to say, what? It's going to cost me what? I think I'll just get down off the altar. But part of what Paul's saying is that choosing to stay on the altar as a sacrifice of your life must happen again and again every day. You see, when you place yourself on the altar, you can't pull yourself back. You've given yourself to God. You're now His. Every morning, you have the opportunity to get up and say, okay, God, I place my will on the altar. I place my struggle with sin on the altar. I place my possessions on the altar. I present to you my desires. I present to you my relationships. I present to you my day. I put them all on the altar. They're not mine anymore. I've just given them to you. I'll regard my life this day as a living sacrifice offered up to you. Do you do that? Do we do this? Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Are we worshiping truly? So the question I've had to deal with all week, and now it's your question, I get to pass it on, is do you sacrifice like this for God? Do you place your life on the altar? Do you do it daily? Do you sacrifice? Because I'll guarantee you, whatever treasure above all else is what you sacrifice for. Do you sacrifice, therefore, for God? In a lot of little ways, usually through the day, and occasionally in costly or painful ways, do you? If Jesus Christ is not Lord of all in your life, he is not Lord at all in your life. You're kidding yourself. If the Bible is a lie, if this is all a myth, it doesn't, if it never really happened, if Jesus isn't really God, if he didn't rise from the dead, then we should not be here today. On the other hand, if Christianity is true, if all of that did happen, then it's of ultimate importance. There is impossibly nothing that could surmount that. And it deserves, therefore, everything that we've got. It's more important than our job, our family, our career, our goals. It's the most important thing ever. C.S. Lewis said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Moderately important. Reminds me, age-old kind of story, but it has merit in this situation. Makes me think of the story of the chicken and the pig who are walking down the road one day when they pass a church having a fundraising breakfast advertising ham and eggs. The chicken said, let's go in and make a donation. The pig responded, ah, yeah, for you it's it's a donation. For me, it's a sacrifice, right? Paul did not urge us. He's not, he said, make a living donation. Just make a donation. That's all you need to do. Paul's not saying that, is he? He's saying, make a sacrifice. Make your life a sacrifice. The phrase casual Christian is an oxymoron. It's a a contradiction in terms like jumbo shrimp, right? Or 
parliamentary ethics <laughs> or working vacation. My favorite is nonstop flight. Think about that for a moment. You're sure hoping that flight stops at some point in time, right? Or how about I'm half dead? No, you're either alive or you're dead. There is no half dead. Jesus Christ is either the Lord of your life or he's not the Lord of your life. Don't kid yourself. There is no in-between. Jesus says, this is the cost. I want you to seek me first. Okay, well, how do we do that? Here's the practical priorities of commitment. First, give God the first thoughts of each day. I already just kind of touched on that. Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. I'm not saying when you get up in the morning, the first thing you have to do is sit down and read your Bible and have a quiet time and pray, although it's not a bad idea. What I'm saying is, before you get out of bed in the morning, you ought to learn that the very first thing, the very first thought that crosses your mind is that you're in the very presence of God and this is the day that he's given you. Even before you roll out of bed, you can either say, good morning, Lord, or you can go, good Lord, it's morning, right? One of the things you ought to start choosing to think about is God's word. Jesus said, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. If you want to change in your spiritual walk and in your spiritual worship, start filling your mind with the source, the scriptures. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. When we meditate on God's word, it gets into our mind. It gets inside of us and it starts changing us. It's powerful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You begin by thinking God's word because the scriptures were not given for our information. The scriptures were given to us for our transformation. It's supposed to change us. It has the power to change us if we let it. Talk to God before you talk to anybody else every day. Read the good news before you get all the bad news that usually assaults us every day. If you will keep, if you do, you'll keep everything in perspective. You'll have a different focus. You'll be focused on who's in charge rather than all the bad news around you. Let your first thoughts, first thoughts, be of God each day. Secondly, give him the first day of every week. On the first day of the week, the disciples came together. They worshiped. Why do Christians worship on Sunday particularly? Well, we do it for two reasons. Because Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. In a way, we celebrate Easter every Sunday then. Kind of a cool thought, isn't it? It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the spirit, we're told in Revelation. Because it's the first day of the week, and we want to give God the first thought of every day, and the first day of the week, we call it the Lord's day. Now, just a little sidebar here for all of you watching at home on live stream. This is your challenge because it's so easy to just make this day because you're, you haven't, you know, sort of made that effort to get dressed and go out and travel to church and kind of focus in your mind. That's what this day is about. Just being able to watch just for a few moments and then tune out and go do other things. Be careful is all I'm saying. Set aside a day. We're told keep a day aside and keep it holy. Keep it set apart. Don't lose the thread because you're at home right now. Keep it set apart. Do something for God today. And then we're told, give him the first 10% of our earnings. Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. 
One of the ways we show that God is first place in our life is to give him the first of our earnings, to give him the value that we have in what we've been given right off the top. There's only one time in the entire Bible that God says, here's how you can prove that I'm here. Here's how you can prove and test me. Here's how you can even know that I exist. God says you prove it by giving to him. You prove it by tithing, which means literally 10%. And all through the Bible, God says the first 10% of your income should go back to God in gratitude for the past and in faith for the future. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Start tithing the first 10% of your income if you're not doing it already and keep at it. Don't just do it for a day or two, kind of like we do our New Year's resolutions. Stick to it. And he says, see if you can outgive me. See, I dare you. See if you can outgive me. The more you give, the more I will bless you in return. You cannot outgive God. It's a fundamental principle of stewardship. Abundant living begins with abundant giving. I'll say it again. Abundant living begins with abundant giving. Don't give because somebody manipulates your emotions. Don't give because you feel guilty. Don't give because you're under pressure. Give as an act of gratitude and worship to the King of Kings. As an act of keeping your priorities in order. You first, you first, always, you first. As a statement of faith saying, I believe, God, that you're in control and you are the great provider and I'm giving to you first and it's an act of faith that you will provide for me with the rest. It's a statement of faith. You cannot live without statements of faith. You cannot live without commitments. We make commitments in school, in marriage, at work. We make commitments at the community club. Yet when it comes to making a commitment to God, we say, oh, I don't believe in tying myself down like that. We make financial commitments everywhere, but we say, I couldn't make a, a financial commitment to God because the economy right now, it's unstable. My, my job, a little uncertain. And then we go out and make a 30-year commitment on our house, a three-year financial commitment on our car, a month-to-month -month commitment on our credit card bill. In essence, we're saying, I can keep my commitments to make payments over here, but I can't be expected to keep a commitment to God. The only one, frankly, who promises to bless me in return. Seriously? Do we realize that withholding our giving for any reason, can I say for any reason again? Do we realize that withholding our giving for any reason is withholding our worship of God? Let's never forget that we're giving to God. We're not giving to the church. We're giving to God. The government might have us believe that we're giving to a charity so that we can get a receipt, but we know better, don't we? We're giving to God as an act of worship that he's first in our lives, that he's worth it in our lives. Here again, Paul makes an amazing statement. The end of Philippians, he's writing to the church and he commends them for their sacrificial generosity. Look at how he talks about their gift. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, you've taken your financial resources and you've placed them on the altar before God and God has chosen to use them then to supply us in our work. How amazing is this? I'll ask all of us now, 
Have we put our money, our financial life on the altar to God? Our home, our car, our bank account, our possessions, are they on the altar? Or are we keeping them for ourselves? Have we said, God, this is all yours. It's all come from your hand, and eventually it goes back to you. I'm going to hold on to it loosely. When's the last time you did something sacrificial for the sake of the kingdom? Sacrificial, something that cost you something. Do you want to? Are you open to it? I'll give you something to shoot for then. We're going to continue with our Thanksgiving food drive. It's going to be a little bit different this year, of course. Throughout the day on this one day, I think it's September 16th, I'm going to look back. Oh, October 16th, hear me, replace that. Zip that out of the whole recording. Friday, October 16th. Throughout the day, we're going to be giving away hampers, kind of a drive-by food hamper giving just outside the doors here to people who need encouragement and a bit of a boost. We all will have an opportunity to fill a hamper or donate towards those hampers, just like we have done other years. Now, because of COVID particularly, we've had to change the clothing part of this drive. We can't do it the way we've always done it. Change is now the operative word. Yes, it's a change of clothes. <laughs> it's a change of clothes. And we think it will be even better because over the next month, we will be getting ready to open a community clothes closet, if you will, right here at Southland, where you and the people in our communities will be able to come in and receive much-needed clothing before winter hits. This, see, this is the silver lining to not being able to use all of our rooms in the building right now. The silver lining is that we can now utilize those rooms for another purpose, for another use. Holding clothing, holding clothing of all sizes, boots, jackets, shoes, and so on. So you can participate, you can sacrifice, you can start cleaning up your closets because the trailer's going to be on our lot soon, waiting to be filled yet again. There's going to be a lot more coming, obviously, in the weeks ahead, but start thinking about October for that. Fourthly, give him the first consideration in every decision. Proverbs 3 says, in everything you do, put God first, and he will direct you. He will lead you. Years ago now, our oldest son was heavily involved in the sport of baseball, which he loved dearly. He advanced in baseball to the point that he was playing on the Manitoba Provincial Team, and he was being scouted by the Atlanta Braves. And colleges in the States had their eye on him as he was finishing his last year of high school. And right then, the high school ministry, the youth group at our church, went on a weekend retreat where the theme was about laying yourself on the altar before God and giving him everything. When he came back, he, we asked him, how did the whole retreat go? And he replied really matter-of-factly, which is kind of his way, it was good. I put baseball on the altar and God didn't give it back. And what? Then the whole trajectory of his life changed in that moment. In that moment. He still to this day likes baseball, but in that moment, there was no longer an interest in a career in baseball. There was no longer an interest in going away to a U.S. college. He stayed home and shortly thereafter started giving a daughter of friends of ours a lift to the University of Manitoba. And that led eventually to their being married and a career for him as a high school math teacher. And he has no regrets about this. Why? Because he gave it on the altar to God and it was no longer his. And God didn't give it back. 
Lay your decisions on the altar before God. Fifthly, give him the first acts of service that you do. Every relationship that you're in, friends, can be an altar on which you and I offer sacrifices to God. And the primary form this takes is when we serve them. We can do this. We can just hold out a hand to somebody. We can encourage someone. You can say, I'm glad you're my friend. And when you do that, it's an act of worship to God. Your relational life is becoming a living sacrifice. And you're on the altar, and God is pleased. And there's a payoff to this commitment to Christ. God promises both a short-term payoff and a long-term payoff. Jesus said, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or drink or wear? Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first. There's that put God first thing again, right? God's kingdom and his righteousness. Seek those first. First God's kingdom and first his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. The short-term payoff when I commit my life totally to Christ is I don't have to worry anymore about those things. God says, when you give your life totally to me, I assume responsibility for every need you have from that point forward. See, in ancient Rome, there were 12 million slaves and servants in ancient Rome. There were more slaves and servants in Rome than there were free people. In fact, many free people voluntarily sold themselves into slavery as servants. Why? Because in Roman law, a master was required under law to take care of all the needs of their servants. So your master was responsible for all your food, all your clothing, all your medical care, your retirement, your education, everything. Every need that you had, he was responsible to take care of. It was like cradle-to-grave security. And in the same way, when we come to God and say, God, I'm putting me on the altar here. God, I give you all of me, all of my life. He says, all right then. You're never going to have to worry again because I'm the master and I'm responsible now to take care of all your needs. That's the short-term benefit. The long-term benefit, of course, comes in heaven. The master will say to you then, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you now in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Three eternal benefits, just like there, bang, 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 bang. Affirmation, God says, well done. Promotion, you're going to have greater responsibility. Celebration, he says, come and share the master's happiness. Can you imagine what that happiness looks like, like a, a perfect party in heaven? Because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, we will never be the same again. We're different people. We're forgiven people. That is something we all have to be grateful for over and over again. I'm glad I'm never going to be the same again. How about you? No fad, no therapy, no pill. Nothing can change lives the way Jesus Christ can because he's God. He changes fearful, timid, weak, cowardly people into confident people. He turns selfish, egotistical, prideful people into loving, gentle servants. He turns haters into lovers and indifference into caring. How many of you would say, Jesus Christ has changed my life? That is why we're here. 
We're not here to impress anybody. We're not here to just go through some kind of ritual. We're not here to build buildings or build monuments to ourselves or frankly even just to make up programs for program's sake. We're not here to have a good time. We're here because the only person that can make the changes in human behavior that we need and our society needs is Jesus Christ. He starts in our lives and he moves out to our family and our friends and our culture. Paul says, make your life a living sacrifice. Put it on the altar. Treasure God above all. Jesus sacrificed his reputation, the approval of the religious leaders of the day, his very life on the cross. He gave everything on the cross. Jesus simply says to each of us, here's the best I've got. Take it. It's yours. Such as I have, I give to you. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I want to talk over you for a moment. Just bow your heads. Let everything else fade away. We've been given a marvelous picture in Scripture of how we as Jesus' church should function. We are a body. Picture a body here. Picture all of us as a body. All the parts. Each of us. You in there somewhere too. Joining together to become one. Loving each part because everyone is important to make the body whole, right? But if we stop, if we just stop with that image for a moment, there's one part missing. Because as the Bible describes us coming together as a church, as a body, it leaves out one part intentionally. The most important part is not there. That's because we can't supply this part, no matter how hard we try. But in fact, we shouldn't be trying at all because it's the head. Now, don't stay too long on the image of a headless body. Move with on with me because that's gross, right? Well, you know what? That's exactly what a church is. Gross if the body doesn't have a head. If it's a body without the head, the Bible makes it crystal clear that Jesus is to be that head. Jesus is the head of the church. He's not a figurehead. He must functionally be our head or we are a headless corpse. We are useless. We are dead. Jesus is the head of our church. That's where direction comes from for how we're to function as a body. And if we as a church body have anyone else, anything else as the head, we're wasting our time. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, of course, the proof is in the pudding. We can't just say Jesus is the head of Southland. We must mean it. We must show it in our complete and utter devotion to him. 99% doesn't cut the mustard. We must, as a body, be listening attentively to every direction Jesus and the Holy Spirit gives us and act upon it because there can be no separation between the head and the body or we cease to be functional as a church. We cease to be functional as a group of people that God has called to love him and love others in the community and to be taking that to the uttermost parts of the world by extension. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of this church, us. Jesus is the one to whom we listen. Jesus is the one to whom we commit our every thought, word, and deed as a church. Jesus is the one to whom we submit every meeting, every program, every offering, every message, every blessing, every honor, every word. All glory is His. 
for what is accomplished. For it is only in him we live and move and have our being. Jesus is the head of the church. And that's why the church is the hope of the world. And that, friends, is getting back to basics. Let's stand now and sing our commitment and affirmation to him now as we close. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 